are the members of the resistance morally superior to Trump supporters? Will conservatives control the Supreme Court for the next 30 years? Is the Electoral College unfair? Is recycling actually bad for the environment? And can you feel the call of the open road? We're going to talk about all of that and more here on the American Culture Podcast. To episode six of the American Culture Podcast. I am Earl B., the creator and host of this podcast, and today I have five current topics to discuss with you that are shaping American culture. The topics include Hillary Clinton's moral superiority, not, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, the Republican Party's, quote, unearned advantages, close quote, according to The New Yorker magazine, how recycling may actually be hurting our oceans. And finally, the great American road trip. I am so glad you have taken the time to join us. So let's jump into our five stories for this episode. The first, we'll call it St. Hillary. President Trump has been very busy in recent days. He just announced his nomination to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court, which I'll discuss much more in uh, topic two today. He's been traveling in Europe for the past several days meeting with leaders of the NATO countries. NATO, of course, stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's the group of countries who have banded together under a treaty to defend Europe against uh, Russian aggression post-World War II. He's been meeting with the leaders of those NATO, NATO countries to encourage them to meet their pledged obligations to pay for their own military defense, at least a little bit, rather than relying on Uncle Sugar to take care of them all the time. As you can imagine, this led to some hurt feelings, although the NATO countries pledged to do better. Trump also met with Prime Minister with the Prime Minister of Great Britain and apparently shared his thoughts with her about how badly he thinks she has screwed up the Brexit negotiations. This also led to some hurt feelings. But all of that is just background to what I really want to talk about. I want to talk about the whiny protesters in the streets and in the media who act as though the end of the world is truly upon us whenever President Trump dares to do his job as President of the United States, supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States on behalf of the American people. Of course, these protesters object to everything the President says or does, just as a matter of principle. And I can tolerate a certain amount of angst that flows from the fact that the left does have honest and deeply felt disagreements over policy. Abortion, immigration, foreign affairs, military policy, tax policy, education policy, you name it, Trump and the left are going to disagree on it. But what is bugging me today that really hit me while I was watching the news coverage on TV and on the internet is that there is this implicit and sometimes explicit thread running through the protests which holds that Donald Trump is a uniquely despicable human being a moral degenerate who is not worthy of even a modicum of civility or respect from the left. This posture of presumed moral superiority really struck a chord with me 
as I was collecting my thoughts for this episode. Because it leaves unsaid, but certainly assumes, that had the Democrats won the 2016 election, we would have as our president today a person of much higher moral standing and virtue, which is total horse manure. Do they think we forget who the Democrat candidate for president was in 2016? Do they think we forget who Hillary Clinton really is? We have been watching Hillary Clinton limp from scandal to scandal, protected by the mainstream media and the Democrat Party, since 1992. That's at least 25 years of high-profile scandals on the national level, never mind what went on in Arkansas before Bill Clinton ran for president. We know who Hillary Clinton is. Donald Trump is certainly no choir boy. He is not refined and polished by nature. But to sit and watch supporters of Hillary Clinton as they lay claim to the moral high ground is a bit much. There is a very legitimate reason, many reasons actually, why Donald Trump was able to saddle Hillary with the crooked Hillary nickname, and there are a host of reasons why that name stuck. Now, I pulled up today, uh, preparing for the the show, uh, an article on WND.com. Back in the day, it was WorldNet Daily. Now they've shortened it to WND.com. It's a July 7th, 2016 article, which revises an earlier 2015 article, and it's entitled, 25 and counting, Hillary's huge scandal list explodes. This is just one article and one list of Hillary Clinton scandals. But if you page through it, and I'll warn you, I put it out double-sided, but it runs to 26 printed pages documenting just the top 25 scandals that Hillary has been involved in over the years. And I won't bore you with them or with all of them, but I'll just tick off a few as examples to remind you who Hillary Clinton really is. You know, let's start with Vince Foster's death in 1993. Now, Hillary Clinton, of course, was a partner in the Rose Law Firm in Arkansas and up to a lot of questionable dealings there. Two partners of the Rose Law Firm followed Hillary, uh, prominently anyway, into Bill Clinton's administration. One was Vince Foster, who ended up with a bullet in his mouth in Fort Marcy Park in Washington, D.C., under very suspicious circumstances. And the other was Webster Hubble, who, after serving as attorney general, ended up in prison. Okay, these are the types of people that Hillary hung around with as business partners at the Rose Law Firm. So you got Vince Foster. You've got, more recently, Emailgate. Okay, Hillary's private server on which she kept her classified emails Why? Because she didn't want any of her correspondence to be made public in violation of any number of federal laws. And any little sailor in the Navy or airman in the Air Force uh, would go to prison for for handling classified information the way Hillary did. But, of course, it looks like she'll probably escape scot-free on that because it appears that just about everybody at high levels of government in Washington, D.C. mishandles classified information. Only the little guys in the military out in the field lose their careers and their freedoms over it. But that's a story for another podcast. Travelgate, when the Clintons first moved into the White House. Whitewater. Whitewater, which was predatory lending before predatory lending was cool. Okay, preying upon old people. Sell them a nice retirement home. Let them make payments on it for a few years. Then they miss a payment. You repossess the house. You keep all the payments and the house. 
The poor retiree is out of all of that. And then you sell the house again to the next retiree and do it again. Wash, rinse, repeat. It was a horrible scandal and horrible predatory practices on, as Hillary likes to say, the most vulnerable in our society. She talked about, if you'll recall, landing under, under sniper fire in Bosnia, which was a lie. There's her missing law firm billing records back in the 90s, uh, which showed that she was up to her eyeballs in the Madison Guarantee Savings and Loans scandal. You've got her speeches to the Wall Street bankers that she refuses to release the transcripts of. The Mark Rich pardon, where she was getting campaign contributions from Mark Rich's wife while her husband was handing out a pardon to an, a guy indicted for crimes, which could have led to over 300 years in prison. The cattle futures trading, where they turned $5,000 into $100,000 in less than a year. Yeah, I won't even get into the Clinton body count or Hillary's adoration of Saul Alinsky, who they like to call a radical. But when you get into what he was all about and what he was really doing, he was a domestic terrorist, and she idolized this guy. Okay, While Secretary of State, she was clearly running a pay-for-play operation. News media reported that if you wanted to get, get a meeting with Hillary Clinton, you needed to pony up and make a donation to the Clinton Foundation or some other cause that they deemed worthy of your cash. And then, of course, there's the sale of uranium to the Russians, the Russian reset. Benghazi, which led to the death of the American ambassador. Over and over and over, again and again and again, she was fired as an attorney working on the on the Watergate investigation of Richard Nixon for having a lack of integrity way back at the beginning of her illustrious legal career. The point is, for Democrats and other members of the resistance, if you want to tangle with the president in the halls of Congress or on TV, or in the streets because you disagree with Donald Trump's ideas for making America great again, then have at it. But I say to these professional protesters, stop the moral preening. Cut out the sanctimonious attitude. You may feel that the American voters sold their souls to elect Donald Trump, but when it comes to personal virtue, you were more than willing to sell your souls to support crooked Hillary. You are absolutely no better than the deplorable voters you're constantly vilifying. It was just an election. You lost. Grow up. So topic two today is going to be Justice Brett Kavanaugh, or potentially Justice of the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. And I just want to kind of rapid fire my thoughts on this. Uh, You know, he's been well documented in the news, his qualifications. He's got what's said to be one of the finest resumes ever. For a, for a judicial nominee for the Supreme Court. I'm not going to go over that in, in any kind of detail. I just wanted to give you my thoughts kind of quickly. And my first thought was it would have been fun to see a bolder pick. Okay, you know, maybe the the woman uh, judge you know, with, from Notre Dame, you know, soft spot in my heart for Notre Dame. Uh, you know, something, some uh, conservative justice who would really shake things up, really be a, an intellectual giant on the court, you know, in the, in the mold of a Scalia uh, but really, Trump, he had to play it safe. Thanks to the the rhinos in the, in the party. Rhino, of course, stands R-I-N-O, Republican in name only. Rhinos like John McCain, we have a, a razor thin margin in the Senate. We really can't afford any defections. Uh, we really can't afford to draw this thing out, uh, you know, given the current balance in the Senate. It had to be a relatively safe pick uh, to, to get through. And, you know, this guy's a Washington, D.C. product. 
He's a Yale product. He's kind of a Washington insider guy in the Bush, Anthony Kennedy, Ken Starr pedigree more than the Reagan Scalia pedigree. But as a Washington, D.C. product, you know, his kids are going to go to the right schools. His He and his wife, you know, go to the right cocktail parties. They all know each other. It actually makes it kind of awkward for a senator to vote against uh, a Judge Kavanaugh uh, because these people know each other. You know, they're on each other's Christmas card lists and so forth. So you get a safe pick who it appears is going to is going to roll on to not confirmation rather, rather easily, despite all the noise. I would have liked to see a woman or a minority, um, you know, get nominated just to watch the Dems reveal their true character. It's always fun when the party that claims to care about women or claims to care about minorities, you know, goes after a Republican woman or a Republican minority with such venom. You know, if you're a Republican and a woman or you're a Republican and a minority member, you're not really black or you're not really Hispanic or you're not really a woman because you're a Republican. And uh, the venom, the it's just horrifying to watch what they do to these fine people for daring to speak their mind. And is there anything more racist than telling a person how they must think and how they must vote because their skin is a certain color or telling a woman how she must think and how she must vote because she's a woman? You know, we talk about the party of racism and sexism. That's your Democrat party. So it would have been, it would have been fun to see a woman or minority uh, nominated just just for the those fireworks. It was clever by Trump to nominate the safe candidate because he's a, by doing this, he's essentially daring the Dems to try and block Kavanaugh. Because if they do block this safe, you know, relatively innocuous pick, if they do block him, those votes by those Democrats in in key states against Judge Kavanaugh will be used against those senators in November to defeat them and to create a bigger margin for Republicans in the Senate starting in January. And then once you have that wider margin, assuming that they succeed in blocking Kavanaugh with a wider margin, the president could could nominate a more uh, aggressively conservative justice. So pretty good chess playing by the, by the president on, the, on this one. You know, I don't, you know, again, I don't really love the idea of a Washington insider being nominated. I don't really love another Ivy League guy getting nominated. But the Federalist Society and other trusted conservative observers seem to like him. And Trump has been really, really good on his judicial appointment so far. It seems that as a replacement for Anthony Kennedy, he will be perhaps a bit more consistently conservative, thus moving the court just a bit more to the conservative side of the scale from where it has been recently. Now, of course, in Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, Trump and the Republicans are really just holding serve. Replacing Scalia and Kennedy with two solid conservatives is not a big change. It's an important change, and it's an important injection of younger blood, but it's really just shoring up the status quo for the foreseeable future. How far is that foreseeable future? 30 years, given the ages of these justices? So this is these are important proceedings, and it's important that the president not screw it up by being too provocative. The safe play here really is the smart play. But these, again, just holding serve, replacing Republican appointees with Republican appointees. The 5-4 conservative lean in the U.S. Supreme Court will remain largely unchanged. The real fight is going to come when and if a liberal justice steps down from the court 
and Trump gets to make the appointment that will tip the Supreme Court from a 5-4 conservative lean to a 6-3 solidly conservative majority. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 85 years old. You've seen the pictures of her falling asleep in her chair at the President's State of the Union speeches. Stephen Breyer himself is 80 years old now. Hard to believe that. And Sonia Sotomayor is only 64 years old, but she has diabetes, which required paramedics to rush to her home to treat her for a low blood sugar episode this past January. So, you know, it's sad, but true. Diabetes, you know, is a, is a killer. And it's possible that uh, her health could, could cause a problem for Justice Sotomayor uh, sooner rather than later. So there's a real chance that the president could get a chance to nominate a third justice in this first term as president. If he were to win again in 2020 and push his term out to 2024, um, I don't know how long uh, Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer or Justice Sotomayor could hold out. I'm sure they would want to hold out until a Democrat were to win, if that were to happen. But I don't know if they're going to have that choice. So it seems very likely that the president, the president Donald Trump, could get three, if not more, Supreme Court appointments during his uh, presidency. And this whole episode just shows how important it was for Republicans to defeat Hillary Clinton in 2016. And it shows how completely wrong the never-Trumpers were in not supporting the GOP nominee. Can you imagine if this nomination was for a second Hillary Clinton Supreme Court nomination? What a nightmare we avoided. And of course, we should all take a moment to thank the former Senate Majority Leader, Democrat Harry Reid, for quote-unquote reforming the rules of the Senate to remove the filibuster for judicial nominees. Senator Harry Reid got greedy in the short term. He got impatient, took away the, the, the filibuster, and even though everyone told him it was going to come back and bite him in the rear end, uh, he persisted. And none of this would be possible without Senator Reid. So I say, hey, Senator Reid, thank you so much for making a Justice Gorsuch, a Justice Kavanaugh, and a potentially third Trump justice possible. Okay, topic three, I want to turn to the New Yorker magazine. Uh, July 11th, 2018 story entitled, Why It's Right to Be Mad About Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court. So this is great stuff. Liberal writer telling all the liberals out there why they should be mad about the Supreme Court. And the reason I, you know, there's plenty of that out there. That's not news. But the, the reason this caught my eye uh, yesterday is there's, a, there's some great language in here about how the, the, the Republicans have been trying to take over the courts and conspiracy this and conspiracy that, and that's fine. But then they, he throws this line in there that says, quote, ultimately, however, the conservative takeover hinged on ruthless power politics, quote, uh, colon, the GOP exploiting its unearned advantage in the Electoral College, the U.S. Senate, and the Supreme Court itself. And then he, he highlights what he calls quirks of the Electoral College, nullifying Hillary's 3 million ballot margin of victory in the popular vote. He talks about the quirks in the Senate and how they're anti-democratic and so forth. And it just, you know, it's once again, you could, on one level, it's just Democrats whining again about the fact that Hillary, 
you know, won the popular vote as if that was even a thing. Um, and lamenting the fact that she, she lost the electoral college. But what this article is and, and what the current state of affairs uh, demonstrates is it's just proof that the Constitution of the United States is, bri- is brilliantly conceived and is working just as it is supposed to. Why do big city liberals feel the need to tell everyone else what to do and how to live? Is it not enough that you're destroying your own cities with your loony policies? I'm looking at you, San Francisco. Do you have to take everyone else down with you? The founding fathers foresaw that more populous areas would outstrip less populous areas in power unless some very strong safeguards were written into the Constitution. These safeguards in the Constitution are not bugs. They are features. Those safeguards are the U.S. Senate and the Electoral College. The smaller colonies back in the day definitely would not have ratified the Constitution without those safeguards. The effectiveness of the Senate as a check on centralized power has already been greatly weakened by the popular election of senators, which was introduced under the 17th Amendment to the Constitution in 1913. That amendment removed very important and effective checks on mob rule. You know what you don't see Democrats asking for? They don't ask for proportional allocation of electoral college delegates. You don't hear them volunteering to give up 40% of California and 40% of New York presidential electors to the GOP. They like the all-or-nothing anti-democratic character of the electoral college when it helps them. The presidential election in America is not a single combined election. It is 50, and it's actually more than 50, separate state elections. And each state election has its own quirks and rules. Don't blame the Constitution because Hillary Clinton is bad at math or too lazy to read the fine print. Topic four today is plastic straws and the oceans. There were a series of stories out this week, which individually caught my eye. And I put them all up on uh, the American Culture Podcast Facebook page, which you can find at facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast. Run those all together with no spaces, American Culture Podcast. And um, each of these stories caught my attention individually. But then as I was preparing for today's episode, I realized they were really connected. And when you connect the dots on these stories, they tell a very interesting uh, story. You know, the first item that I saw was a story out of the uh, DailyMail.com out of, out of, out of England. And the the headline on this story, dated uh, July 2nd, 2018, and updated on July 5th of 2018, says, Shocking study reveals that 90% of global plastic waste comes from just 10 rivers in Asia and Africa. And when you dig into the story, they've got a nice map and they show the rivers. And the rivers are the Niger River and the Nile River in Africa, the Indus and the Ganges rivers in uh, India, the Indian subcontinent. And then in the China, Chinese area, the Mekong River, the Pearl River, the Yangtze River, the Yellow River, the Hai He River, and the Amur River, which I think is actually up there in uh, maybe Mongolia or Russia. I'm not sure. But anyway, those nine, nine rivers in Asia 
and Africa that produce 90% of the plastic waste that gets into the oceans. And you dig it in a little deeper, and this was actually a conversation I was having on Facebook with a friend of mine. He found a, some research from oceancrusaders.org that had a nice chart showing um, the total annual output of mismanaged plastic waste disposed in oceans by the top 20 countries. And it shows how many tons of these top, how many tons of waste these top countries mismanage. And number one on the list of mismanaging plastic waste and presumably allowing it to get into the rivers that we see in the other story uh, is China. And then Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Egypt, Malaysia, Nigeria, Bangladesh, South Africa, India, Algeria, Turkey, Pakistan, Brazil, Burma, Morocco, North Korea, and finally, in 20th place, the USA. China mismanages almost nine metric tons of plastic per year. And the U.S. down in 20th place is looks like, you know, 0.3, you know, a third of a, a metric ton maybe. Far, far fewer. So, so that's the first couple of stories, okay? So plastic waste in the oceans, which everyone's very excited about, okay, comes mostly from the rivers in Asia and Africa. Next story that you see, and again, separately caught my eye, is Starbucks. You know, there's been a lot of talk about plastic straws recently. There was some towns here in California, and I think elsewhere in the country, that contemplated it, or in fact did eliminate plastic straws, you know, threatening to throw waiters into jail for offering someone a plastic straw is certainly going to solve our our, uh, environmental pollution problems, but that's the solution that they were settling upon. So plastic straws are under fire, and Starbucks came out with a, a splash this week and announced we're going to eliminate plastic straws, you know, from our restaurants, you know, soon. And they introduced a new fancy lid that they were going to use on their drinks that was instead of the straws. And then Reason website, um, let's see, yeah, Reason.com, they did a little research into this lid that Starbucks is introducing, and they find out that the lid that they're going to use to replace the straw actually has more plastic in it than the old lid and straw combination that they're getting rid of. And there's nothing special about straw plastic. Okay, it's plastic, and it gets into the rivers, it gets into the ocean, it breaks down into the microplastics that compose these giant whirlpools of plastic you've seen that are supposedly out there in the ocean endangering the planet. When the plastic is plastic, the lids, the new lids break down as much as the straws break down, except that the new lids actually have more plastic in them than the straws did. So what that means is the new lids and the getting rid of the straws don't actually solve anything. They just allow Starbucks customers to feel better about themselves because they're not using a straw. You know, good for you. More virtue signaling from the left. You know, pat yourself on the back for doing something that actually didn't solve anything. And then the final story that that brings us all together was out of the Los Angeles Times on their website. Story dated July 9th. LA Times, entitled Environmentally Minded Californians Love to Recycle, but it's no longer doing any good. And the thrust of this story is, until recently, Californians would put all their recyclable waste into their big blue bins, you know, for recycling, and they would be carried away 
And the blue bins, they, they weren't going to some recycling center, which everyone kind of imagines in their head that happens to this, the blue bins when they leave their house. Those blue bins were going somewhere and ultimately ending up on barges where this trash was being sent on ships across the ocean to China, okay? Because it's not economical to re- actually recycle that waste here in the United States and certainly here in California. So it was being shipped to China, and I won't even get into the the uh, carbon footprint of putting trash on a ship and sending it to China, okay? But it goes to China. People in China who work for lower wages would then sort the trash, supposedly, and find out, you know, what of that trash can in fact be recycled and then recycle it. But of course, we know from our first couple of stories that China is the worst offender for mismanaging waste, allowing it to get into the rivers and thus ending up in the ocean, which means that if you recycle your plastic in California, there's a very good chance it ends up on a barge going to China. And then as it's being sorted in China, it gets mismanaged and that plastic ends up in a river in China and then that plastic ends up in the ocean, which means that trying to be a good person and recycling your trash in California is actually worse for the environment than just throwing it in the regular trash can and having it go out to the landfills. So I thought those stories were interesting. And the conclusion I draw is that you know, there's obviously a huge dose of irony Okay, that the urge to recycle everything results in waste going to China, getting into the rivers, and increasing the microplastics in the oceans, which means that just sending the plastics to landfills is actually more environmentally friendly than conscientiously putting all your plastics in the big blue recycle bins. I don't root for pollution in the oceans, obviously, but I do shake my head at the liberals who never learn that good intentions alone are not enough. You have to look honestly at the results of your politics and make changes when your well-intended policies have unintended effects. And that's one of the biggest beefs I've had with liberalism my whole adult life is the law of unintended consequences means nothing to them. To them, as long as your intentions are pure, the results don't matter. And that's how we end up with bad policies that last forever that waste billions and trillions of dollars and that don't help anyone or don't solve any problems. You have to look at the real world consequences of your policies, make adjustments or change them when you realize, hey, this isn't working and we're wasting a lot of money and we aren't helping anyone. So that's plastic straws and the oceans. And our final topic today to talk about is road trips. You know, it's, it's the middle of July and it's time for the Great American Road Trip. And I just am a little bit nostalgic right now. There's a lot of change going on in our family. As I'm recording this tonight, my daughter and her husband are on a, on a Great American Road Trip with their dog from Chicago to California, where her husband's going to go to grad school for the next couple of years. And they're, I believe they're camped out, metaphorically speaking, in the middle of Nebraska tonight you know, on the, on the great American road trip. And I'm thrilled about it because although my daughter's traveled quite a bit around the world, even, um, I never was able to get her into a car and take a, you know, a cross country road trip with her, which I believe a lot in the value of those cross country road trips. So the fact that she's going to be driving from Chicago to California 
and of course stopping here to, to see us uh, on the way um, makes me very happy because I think until you've driven across Nebraska or Iowa or South Dakota and seen the corn and the wheat and seen the wide open spaces, um, I think your knowledge of our country is incomplete. If you've only been a, on the coast, if you've only been in the tri-state area in New York or you've only been in the Bay Area or L.A., and never ventured further than Las Vegas or the Poconos, I don't think you have a you know a complete picture of what our country is like. And as someone who spent time in the Midwest, I went to school there, I've worked there, I grew up in California, and I feel like I've got I've got a, a better sense of what our country's about than people that uh, are cloistered in New York City full time and who don't really understand the challenges and the. Um, the aspirations of people that live in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Kansas, Colorado, Oklahoma, Texas, you know, there's a lot of uh, derision directed that way from people on the coast. I think if they spent some time out in, the, in, in Trump country, out in flyover country, you know, they might have a better understanding. We might all have better understanding of each other. Later this summer, my son and I are going to hop in a car and we're going to go the other direction, cross country from Southern California back to Wisconsin, where he's a, in graduate school. And we're going to be hauling uh, his dog and some other stuff back to Wisconsin for him. And we're going to, we're going to take a longer route because we're going to detour through the Grand Tetons National Park and uh, Yellowstone National Park and go across North Dakota because he hasn't seen that part of the country yet. So... I'm excited and I'm feeling a little nostalgic. When I was a kid, we used to take road trips from California to Colorado, California to Indiana and back. And I think it's a, I think it's a kind of a quintessentially American thing to do. My wife and I, by the end of this year, we're hoping to have completed our quest to have visited each of us, all 50 States of the, in the United States, which sounds, you know, kind of silly, I suppose on some level. But it actually means a lot to me to, to be able to say, to, if I meet another American and I say, where are you from? I, no matter where they're from, I can at least say, hey, I've been to your state. You know, I know a little bit about it. I may not have been there very long. I may not have seen all your state, but I've, I've been there and I know that part of the country. And I think that's important um, to understanding our country, to understanding each other. So I just want to take a shout out to the, to the Great American Road Trip, to, to Flyover Country, to Trump Country. And encourage uh, all of you to get out there and see uh, this great land. So those are our five topics for today. Stay tuned after this short musical bump to learn more about our podcast, how you can be in touch with us, and how you can help us grow. hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Culture Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our show, we are on the web at AmericanCulturePodcast.com. That's all one word, no spaces, AmericanCulturePodcast.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash AmericanCulturePodcast. Again, all one word, no spaces. We're on Twitter and our Twitter numbers are growing. I'm up, we're closing in on 5,000 followers on Twitter, which I feel good about. Okay. Our Twitter handle is uh, at am 
Culture Pod, A M C U L T U R E P O D. If you could give us a like or a follow or a retweet or a share on Facebook or Twitter, that would be awesome. Ours is a new podcast, and you can really make a difference and help us grow our audience by subscribing to the American Culture Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, on Stitcher, on Google Play, or on whatever platform you found us. If you really want to be a superhero, you could go the extra mile and write us a five-star review. I would be very grateful. I also have created a page at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, for the podcast, www.patreon.com slash American Culture Podcast, where you can go to become a patron of this podcast and pledge your support of our work here at levels from $1 per month on up. All content of the American Culture Podcast is copyrighted by Earl B. and AmericanCulturePodcast.com. The views and opinions of the host and any guests, as expressed on the podcast, are solely those of the speakers and not of any other person or organization. Thanks for sharing this time with me today. Let's meet back here again real soon.